If you have your scriptures with you, you might want to turn to the second epistle of Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me tell you something. I miss you terribly when I'm not here. I, uh, <clears throat> I kind of feel like a kid that has been sent to church camp when I go away. I know it's necessary. I know I'll learn a lot about God, but I get terribly homesick. I, don't, I could never be an evangelist. You know that? I got to have my homeboys. You're my homeboys. So, so I'm awful glad to be back. And I'm glad to be back to tell you some great news. It's, it's really the other half of the message that I preached two weeks ago on the provision for our holiness. Remember, that provision for our holiness was, is Christ in us. His nature living in us. But when you really look at that passage, there is something wonderfully additive to that tremendous simplicity. Now, it's a simple thing to invite Christ into your heart, to say, Jesus, come in, live in my life, take away my sin, do with my life whatever you want to do. That's a very simple thing. Our ticket to heaven is not all that he brings. He doesn't just come to get us into heaven. He comes to get heaven into us. And when you read the rest of those verses, you'll understand that the nature of Christ is wonderfully complex. And all of those are now your nature. You see, there is in the spiritual world what there is in the physical world. There, there was a, a book out some time ago uh, Michael Behe uh, called Darwin's Black Box, a biochemical challenge to evolution. And what Behe did as a, as a, as a biochemist was examine the most uh, minute portions of physical reality. And what he came up with was this. There is no simple element in the world. That is to say... That, that the most basic element of the, of the makeup of the physical universe is in itself a complex team of, of elements working together, which, of course, he says, uh, indicates intelligent design. Well, I want to say the same thing is true in your spiritual life. It's not just Jesus coming into your heart. There's something even more wonderfully complex than that. And that is all of His characteristics He brings to you. They are available for you. And you can access them. And so as we look at this passage, beginning with verse 5, you will see this. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith. Now, it presupposes faith. Faith is how you got Jesus in there in the first place. So it presupposes faith. It says in this version, um, supply moral excellence. Now, in the King James Version, it says add. And that's why in your sermon outlines I put add. But that might be misleading. Because adding, by adding, we get the idea that we're going to go out and bring something into our life so that it's more complete. No. What we're doing is adding to our awareness of what Christ is already in us and who we are already in Christ. 
You can think of this thing as kind of a deepening uh, venture here of concentric circles of what Christ has given you in your nature by accepting Him. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to see our supply that is already there. Now that will come as a surprise to many of you because most of you pray for these things like you don't have them already. Well, the good news is you got them. It's in there. So let's go down just one by one and, and very quickly see what you already have, what you can work with, what you can depend upon. First of all, it says supply moral excellence or, or see that you have a supply of moral excellence. Uh, in King James, it's virtue. The, the Greek word really is one that means a, a courage, a courage to make a difference, a courage to uh, apply who God is in you. I love it when I see the, the new members uh, up here, and every one of them is either involved in ministry or thinking about how they're going to serve the body. Because that's what this moral excellence is. That's what virtue is. It is giving to the body. That is God's nature. I love it when Bud, the guy that does our numbers, says uh, the last couple of weeks um, people have stepped up, and the number of people have stepped up their giving. I love that. Let me tell you why. It's not so that we can meet a church budget. It's because I know that when people participate in the nature of God in them, that is, God so loved He gave. That's the nature of God. That's the nature of God's love, giving. I know that when people do that, when they express Christ's nature in them, they're going to be blessed way beyond what they ever expected to be. And I know that this takes courage because many people feel impoverished in these areas. They feel absolutely impoverished. But here's the great truth. You're not impoverished. God gives you the resources to give. And so therefore, He not only asks you to be a giver, He gives you what you can give. So when you take a look at your life, Realize that you have a supply, Christ's supply, Christ's unending supply of giving, of doing the right thing for other people. Then it says, um, know that you also, it says, to your moral excellence or in your moral excellence, knowledge. Make sure you have a supply and make sure that you tap the supply of knowledge that you have. Now, this knowledge is discernment of the movement of God. How many of you have something in your life right now that you're just kind of a little, little upset with God about because you don't understand why that happened? And, and you just got a little angry with Him. Now, I know people say, oh, I'd never get mad at God. Well, of course you would. Come on now. Who are you mad at? Yeah, you, you, you get a little upset with Him because you don't understand why this has happened. Well, Scripture says that God gives you a spiritual discernment, that you can access knowledge of God working. Now, sometimes that does speak directly to a particular disappointment in your life. Sometimes God will just show you this is why it happened, and He'll show you immediately, and it's wonderful. I, uh, my, our, our second son, Isaac, um, who is a lot like his daddy, uh, has been called to be a preacher from a very young age, and uh, this past couple of weeks, through his mother and my urging, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't big on this, ran for student body president of his college and uh, lost. 
And, and so I, and I know how competitive he is. He's just intensely competitive. I don't know where he gets it, but it's, <laughs> it's there. And I recognize that. And so does he. He hates to lose. So after I got back from Egypt, I called him up. I said, hey, Isaac, how you doing with this thing? He said, I'm doing great. I said, really? What's up with that? I mean, how'd you get so relaxed about that? He said, Pop, this is so great. He said, you wouldn't believe this. I, right before the debates for this thing, there were like six people running. He said, right, right before the debates for this thing, I had a class. And I, I thought about skipping it because, uh, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. And I needed to prepare for the debates. And so I, but I thought, no, I, I ought to go to the class. So I went to the class. Well, the teacher wasn't even there. But they had a video. And the video was of Billy Graham. It's a leadership class. And on that, they were interviewing Billy Graham uh, about his life. And, and right in the middle of that thing, they asked him, what is the greatest temptation you ever had in your life? And Billy Graham, who was called to be a preacher, said, my greatest temptation was that of running for office instead of being the preacher that God called me to be. Isaac said, I felt like just shouting out, okay, God, can you talk any louder? You know? He said, I felt like going to the debates and just withdrawing before I ever got there, but I carried it through and lost them. And it's great. It's great. And, he, and that's a great truth because, because the greatest impediment to a preaching ministry will be getting caught up in politics and, and you know, different organizational stuff instead of listening to God so you can talk to his people. That's a great lesson. So sometimes God tells you exactly what's up. But let me tell you, much more often he doesn't. And you're you're left wondering. But with this reservoir, this discernment that comes with the nature of Christ in you, let me tell you what you can do. You You can look at what else God is doing. You can have a knowledge of his general movement in the body. And with that, you will gain more and more of a confidence that not only is God moving, but there is a reason for what is happening to you. You may not know it yet, but there is one, and someday you will know it, and you'll be glad about it. When you know broadly of what God is doing, you have more confidence. And so the Bible says, you know, to add to your courage, to add to what you do, doing the right thing, add to your general knowledge of God. And then it says... Add to, uh, I'm sorry, it it says, um, make sure that you um, know that you've been added to by your ability now for self-control or temperance. Now, this is one that we kind of want and sometimes don't. (laughs) We kind of want generally... Or we kind of want it after we've opened our big mouth and and really acted impetuously and gotten ourselves in a lot of trouble, but it lasts only a little while. And so, but this was the nature of Jesus. Remember how he, how many times he had to exercise self-control. I mean, I often wonder, wouldn't you just, if you were Jesus and saw these pinheaded people coming after you all the time, these scribes and Pharisees, you know, wouldn't you just be tempted with all your power just to kind of do one miracle that was a little bit nasty? (laughs) I mean, I I would. I I would just be tempted to be just a little bit impetuous and, you know, oh, you have three noses. I wonder how that happened. You know, I, I, I would just, but he never did. He never did. These guys just kept coming after him, you know, and he didn't. He said, I could call down legions of angels, but he didn't. He had perfect self-control. And you know what? So do you. 
It's just, it's in you. It's in you. And what it takes is just concentration on understanding that that ability is already there with the nature of Christ. When I was in Cairo, I, I watched the, our room was sixth floor, over, over uh, looking like a six-lane highway. I think it was six-lane. You couldn't tell because there were no uh, paint. There, was no, there were no lane demarcations because there are no rules for driving in Cairo. Absolutely no rules. And so there was this highway, and then there's the Nile River. And so, and, and so I'd often just go out and start looking at the Nile, but then start looking at the traffic. And driving in Cairo was unbelievable. Because there are no rules, people just, people just drive all over the place and come within portions of inches of, of, of each other. And, and getting in, because they, they hired us a car to take us several places. And I was just scared to death. I mean, and nobody else seemed to be scared to death. But, but, but everybody just honked, just kept honking. I watched, I watched somebody off, off the balcony, I watched somebody go from the extreme right-hand lane, decided they decided they needed right about here to make a left-hand turn into that garage over there on the left-hand side of the road. And this guy just puts his hand out and just starts slowly turning. And of course, everybody's honging, 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 honging. But he just went right in. I thought to myself, if that guy tried that in the United States, he'd be, he'd be wrecked or shot, one of the two. <laughs> why can he do that in Cairo? And I'll tell you why. Because... They honk, but they yield. They honk, but they yield. That's how terrible accidents don't happen with no rules. There is a tremendous busyness, but people read the reality of the traffic situation, and any time it looks like something else has a position, they just let it have a position. Americans honk, but they don't yield. And so I want to tell you, self-control is about, go, go ahead and express yourself. But yield. you got to just let up on this thing. The world is the world is the world. You've got to yield here. And that's how you can kind of keep out of accidents, so to speak. So, and that ability is in you. That ability is in there. And then the next one, it says, discover also, in addition to that, your ability for patience. Now, the world's patience and biblical patience are two different things. The world's patience is waiting with an attitude. You know? It's like, okay, hasn't happened yet, you know, and you're just getting madder and madder. Biblical patience, watch this, is waiting with anticipation. Let me tell you, and some of you really need to hear this this morning. Just because you're stalled doesn't mean God's stalled. Just because you can't go anywhere with where you want to go doesn't mean God can't go anywhere with where you want to go. As a matter of fact, we have seen over and over and over again how by delaying one thing, God brings about something much better. And that is the attitude of patience. And I know some of you think, man, this thing is just getting worse and worse. Just getting worse and worse. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's getting better and better. I can guarantee you because I know God. And I know, his, I know how he's at work in the world. I, I, I learned some startling statistics this week in, at a conference in Cyprus. You know that in the year 100 A.D., there was, for every one Christian, 
there were 360 non-believers. In the year 1995 A.D., for every one Christian, there are only seven non-believers. In the year 100 A.D., for every church, there were 12 unreached people groups. In the year 1995, there are 413 churches for every one unreached people group. Now, it may look like the world's getting worse and worse, but I want to tell you, God's been making progress while we've been frustrated. Yeah, we're, see, we're almost there. And so you got to have this understanding of biblical patience that says, well, I'm a little frustrated, God, but I know that you're working something out even better. And I know that by virtue of who's living inside of me. I can, I can believe that by virtue of the nature of Christ. And then it says, make sure that you're aware that God has added to you godliness. Godliness. And you know what? We've got, to, we've got to change our image of godliness. I tell you what, the devil has done a trick on us by making us think that godliness is all this heavy, uh, weighty, uh, awful, uh, takes a lot of energy kind of stuff. Godliness is just the opposite. Godliness is what makes you buoyant and joyful and happy. You know that. What, what does your heart feel like after you've done something wonderful for somebody? After you've done something that God wants you to do, you feel joyful. You feel lighter. What does your heart feel like when you've done something you know you ought not to do? You feel heavier, don't you? Absolutely. Everybody knows that. When I came back, I, I brought Joel, uh, my youngest, uh, a book on uh, mummies, how to make a mummy, because uh, he wants to be a doctor, so I thought it would be pretty interesting. And, and, and let me just tell you uh, a little bit about it. I know you're about to eat lunch here, so I won't go into the thing, but when you make a mummy, <laughs> when, you, when, you, when somebody dies, what, what they did is in, they did, made an incision in the left side, and they extracted um, the, all the soft organs, gave them each their nice little, their, their own kind of cool little coffin, and, but they left the heart in there. Now, why would they leave the heart in there? They believed that all of the actions and all of the attitudes of life accumulated in the heart. And they believed in a judgment day. And they believed that someday uh, the judge would come back for that mummy. <coughs> Excuse me. And when he came back, he would weigh the heart. Literally, there would be a scale and there'd be a statue of this one goddess on one side. And the heart would be on the other side. And if the heart weighed less than the statue, then he went to paradise. And if the heart weighed more than the statue, then he went to hell. You see, even in that foreign kind of faith, there was a sense that sin weighs us down. Do you feel that sometimes maybe if you can just have a little relief through sin, that maybe you'll be okay? But what happens? Afterwards, you just feel heavier. And so when God wants us to be godly, it's for our relief, it's for our joy, it's for our lightheartedness, it's for our buoyancy. And you have the ability. It's not hard to be godly. It simply calls for accessing the nature of Christ that's already there. It's waiting to be accessed. You've got the ability because Christ is living in your heart. Now one more. It says, oh, not, maybe two more. I don't know how many more. 
two more. It says, and, and make sure that you understand that not only can you be godly, but there's a brotherly kindness in you. Now, the word here literally is Philadelphia in Greek. And it means it's a broad scope thing. You know what we have? Most of us have selective kindness. We'll, we'll, we'll try to be nice to one person at a time. But what happens is that means we kind of ignore. We don't have this uh, sensitivity to other people <laughs> Excuse me, while we're trying to be nice to one person. And so what happens is a lot of people get dumped on because we are trying to be nice to one person, but we're meanwhile kind of dumping on everybody else not because we don't have that broad kind of sensitivity. When I was, when I was coming back from Amsterdam to Orlando, we were about seven hours into a nine-and-a-half-hour flight. You know how you get. I mean, your body's just just starting to get stiff, and, and I, I had a dull headache. I was trying to watch a movie, and it was too stinking cheap to rent the earphone things. And so, so, so I, was trying, I was trying to make out the Danish subtitles. <laughs> What's that? You know? And so my head hurt, my body hurt, and this little girl, probably nine months old, maybe a year old, two rows ahead of me, just got violently airsick. I mean violently. And I'm going, okay, all right. The dad, in a panic to help his little girl, picks her up, puts her in his arms. Meanwhile, she's still gagging in York. You know, and everybody's going, oh, this. And for some reason, I still do not know to this day why he did this. He marches her back two aisles, stands directly over my seat. <laughs> and the little girl's going, bah, bah. and I'm going, and he's wiping her off and all this stuff dropping on my tray. I'm gonna... Now, what are you going to say? The guy's got a sick little girl. You're not going to go, hey! Get her out of here, you know. So I just, just stayed like that until he went away. Well, there's a quality that he was missing. That's that he was doing the right thing, but he was only doing it for one person. And he, 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 he didn't realize there were others around who were kind of getting dumped on. And, and you've got that ability, see? You've got that ability for that broad view kindness. To know that there are other people who, have, who are kind of hurting like they are right now, but... But, um, but if you dump on them, then it'll be all the worse. So, so it's that broad spectrum. And, and then one more. He said, at the very center, at the very center, this is a quality in you. It's, it's the, uh, the agape love. It's, the, it's, it's who God is in his simplest definition. First John gave us the simplest definition of God, and that is God is love. Now, I know that there are some of you who really do not believe that there are some people in your life that you can ever love. I know that. And I know that there are very good reasons for that belief. But I want to tell you something very truthfully and very factually this morning. You can. You can. Because the greatest lover who ever lived, lives in you. We came into contact when we were in Cyprus with a, with a man who has a unique ministry in Jerusalem. And that ministry is reconciling believing Arabs and believing Jews. Now, this is not an easy thing. Now, but even though both of them now have come to Christ, we cannot realize in this country what thousands 
of years of racial hatred have done to these people. I asked him, you know, what is there? Can you give me any hope for the peace process? And he just said, politics will never do this deal. But through Christ, it can be done. I've seen it. And I said, well, what do you do? He said, I will take these two groups of people who have been taught to hate each other all their lives and we'll go out, watch this, into the desert where our father Abraham first let the boys get separated. You remember the story, don't you? You know that Israel came from Isaac and, and the Arabs came from Ishmael. And those two half-brothers that day, there was a tremendous decision for the world when those two half-brothers were separated that day. And he said, what I do is I just take these people and we live in the desert together. And we come back into the original love of the Father. I want to tell you that some of you are struggling with your ability to love right now. And you're doubting whether you can ever, ever love the people you need to love. You may never be able to like them. You may never be able to approve of what they've done. But you can love them. Listen to this startling, absolutely startling truth. You have all the ability to love that God has because God is residing in you. Pray with me. God, thank you that you came to us in a way that would give us who you are so that who we were, literally our identity would be completely changed. Thank you that you did not stop with delivering sinners into heaven. But you continued with infusing what is of heaven into these sinners. God, thank you that you have given us everything we need. We keep praying for it like it's not there, but it's there. Help us to access more and more the character of Christ that's already in us. We pray in his name. Amen.